wish you a happy new year. And, and I, I sincerely hope that you were reasonable and responsible as you rang out the old and rang in the new last night. I also hope that you were cautious as you, uh, as you articulated your desires for this next year where you want to see God take you. But at the same time, I hope that you were bold. Bold in surrendering to God with the intention of letting Him do the things that He plans to do in your life in 2023. My sole resolution was that I would begin this new year by telling you a story from God's Word. <laughs> and I did that in the spirit of keeping my goals manageable. I, I knew that that was going to happen no matter what stupid hats or otherwise. For those of you who are taking notes, the title of the message this morning is On Account of Giving an Account. And the tricky part this morning is that I do plan to tell you a story from God's Word that doesn't have a great deal of context or background. We do know uh, prior to this story that Israel had rebelled against God, which is a fairly common context in the Old Testament. But in this particular case, there's no real record of what they had done, and that's why there's no real context or background for the story. We also know that they did provoke God's anger, and he set out to punish them. He initiated punishment for them for whatever it was they had done. God initiated that punishment by citing, inciting David to take a census of the army. In other words, God incited David to count the fighting men of Israel and Judah. I know that's not much, but with that background, this is the story from God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 24, and you can turn there to check my facts if you'd like. God had incited David to count the fighting men of Israel and Judah, so David met with General Joab and the army commanders, and he told them to discover and inform him as to how many fighters Israel had. Joab knew right away, the general knew right away that this was a bad idea. He knew that counting the troops would be seen and interpreted as a failure to trust God to, to, to deliver them in battle. And Joab said that very thing to David. So General Joab was against it from the start, but King David overruled him and the count was taken. At the end of nine months and 20 days, the count was finished, and General Joab and the other commanders reported back to King David, and they told him that Israel had 800,000 able-bodied men who were able to handle a sword, and Judah had another 500,000, a huge army. Once David had those numbers in hand, he realized immediately that he should have resisted the urge to number the fighting men. David's heart was broken. So he began to pray and said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant because I know that I've done a very foolish thing. When he had finished praying, he went to his chambers and got some sleep. That night, God spoke to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer, and told Gad to go and confront David. So Gad went to David and told him that the Lord had said, I I I'm giving you three options. This is what the Lord told David. And I want you to choose for me, one of them for me to carry out against you. And these were the three options that, that the Spirit of God gave David that day. Three years of famine, or three months of running away from his enemies as they pursued him, or three days of plague in the land. I don't know which one you would have chosen, and I'm not sure which one I would have chosen, but we do know which one David chose. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let the hands 
of the Lord be upon me. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. In other words, David chose three days of plague in the land of Israel. And that very morning, an angel of of the Lord carried plague all throughout the land of Israel. The plague began in the northern part of of the country near the city of Dan and traveled south to the city of Beersheba. And during the course of those three days, 70,000 people died. The angel then turned toward the city of Jerusalem and would have brought the plague there, but David prayed and said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep, David said. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And in response to David's prayer, God relented and told the angel to stop. The angel stopped right before he arrived at the threshing floor of a man named Araunah, the Jebusite. Gad, the prophet, spoke to David and told him to go to that very place and ask Araunah for permission to use his land to make a burnt offering to the Lord. When David arrived there, he asked Araunah if he might buy his threshing floor to make a burnt offering. And in response to David's request, Araunah said, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes, and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and, 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 and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. And then Araunah said, Your Majesty, I give all this to the king. And then concluded by saying, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Araunah, No. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. So the king paid for the land and the oxen and the wood. And David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. And that is the story from God's word. There are a lot of details in that story and and perhaps a few names you don't recognize and won't likely remember. But I do want you to remember what David said to Arauna when Arauna offered to give David his threshing floor, the oxen and the wood for the, off- for the offering at no charge. It's right there in 2 Samuel 24, that thing that he said, and it might make a good memory verse for all of us this new year. But the king replied to Arauna, you can see it there on the screen, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. If you think about it, what David said that day made incredibly good sense. You can't offer a sacrifice that costs you nothing because at that point, it's not a sacrifice. If it costs you nothing, it's not a sacrifice. That's because expense is built right into the meaning of the word sacrifice. Now, I can't remember the last time I offered a burnt sacrifice, and unless you count the the last time I grilled steak. And I I don't mean to turn this into a joke, but I'm just trying to say that I don't often offer burnt sacrifices to God. But I do offer things to God on a regular basis, and I also make sacrifices for the sake of His kingdom uh, on a regular basis as well. And I'm sure that you do the same thing. You offer things to Him. You make sacrifices on behalf of the kingdom. In my case, I can tell you that contrary to the rumors you may have heard, I actually do work more than 40 minutes a week. In fact, I spend many, many hours during the week preparing for the 40 minutes I spend up here bringing you a message from God's word. 
And I have a confession to make. I love you all. I do. But contrary to what you might think, the message that I offer on a Sunday morning is not offered to you. I speak the words during 40 minutes. But the hours that I spend preparing are hours that I offer to God himself. I don't mean to over-spiritualize this, but I've often shared my prayer with you on Sunday morning and throughout the week. I pray, Lord God, what these people need this Sunday is you. But all they have is me. And so I'm offering myself and my time to you during this week so that you can use me to speak to them. And because I offer my time and myself to God during the week, my prep time is expensive for me. And I'm willing to pay that price because, to quote King David, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. And that's the very principle that I want to unpack for you this morning as we launch into this new year. I, I know you've already done that, but uh, let's think through what we've actually done. As you know, we begin to unpack a passage or a principle uh, by, by reading God's word on the matter. So if you would, please stand with me as we read aloud together from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Read with me if you would. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what, ha if what has been built survives the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Thank you. You can take your seats confident that God's spoken to us already. Paul's talking here in this passage about the judgment seat of Christ. That's why that word day is capitalized. The day will declare it. That was Paul's code word for the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ and the kind of issues that will be raised when we stand before Jesus at the end of our lives, at the end of the age. And I have to say that what Paul mentions as things that are going to be brought up when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ are different than the kind of things you typically hear from many pulpits in America. But that's the context to which Paul is speaking. And he'll use two metaphors to help us to understand what he means. He'll first liken his ministry to someone who's planting and tending a field where a crop is growing. And then he'll shift to another metaphor and liken his ministry to someone who's building a large building. And if we step into the field for a moment, Paul will ask us to imagine him walking into a broad field where no work has been done. Just an empty field. Paul likens himself to a farmer who plows and cultivates that field and then plants seeds that will grow into a harvest. He's talking about something that you should understand well if you've been listening to the messages here at the Potter's House over the well, last several years. We've often talked about apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers and the role that they play in a church plant. 
And you'll recall, I, I, I trust, that we've often said that an apostle and a prophet go together to an unreached people group or an unreached area, and they prepare the hearts of the people there to hear the good news about Jesus. That's the way they do it. Then once the hearts of the people are prepared, the apostle and the prophet work together to teach and explain the good news to those people, and then they encourage the people to believe it. Paul and Silas had done that very thing in Corinth. They prepared the soil and planted the seed, and folks believed. Those new believers were like sprouts in the field that needed to be watered and tended. You can picture it. And that's where an evangelist comes in. Not a Billy Graham evangelist, but a first century evangelist like Timothy or Titus or Apollos. And in the case of Corinth, it was in fact Apollos. It was indeed Apollos who had come in and taken over where Paul and Silas left off. Apollos watered the seeds that Paul had planted, but Paul wants us to understand that neither he nor Apollos were able to take credit for the crop that was growing there in that field called Corinth. In fact, the way Paul phrased it was, he, Paul, had planted the seed, and Apollos had watered the seed, but it was God who caused the seed to grow. That's what Paul says in the passage right before the one we read earlier. Look at this. Look at verses 5 to 9. What, after all, is Apollos, and, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Paul had planted the seed because that was the job that God designed Paul to do. And Apollos had watered the seed because that was the job that God had designed Apollos to do. And that's why we would ultimately say that people had done the work, but it was God who made things grow. So when it comes to the crop that was planted there in Corinth, that was how it had worked. But then, right there at the end of verse 9, you can see it, Paul switched metaphors and began talking about a building. Look at verse 9 again. For we are co-workers. Apollos and I are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Paul switched metaphors here because he wanted to expand the idea and there were limitations to how far he could go with the idea of planting and tending a crop. When Paul talked about working in a field, he spoke of himself as the one who had planted and he spoke of Apollos as the one who had watered and he made it clear that God was the one who made the crop grow, that made things grow. But the image of planting and harvesting is a limited illustration because no person can make the crop grow. No matter how involved you get, no matter how, how intense your heart is as you reach out to other people, you cannot make the crop grow. No person can do that. Oh, you know, you can send someone to put down fertilizer, but that tends to be a pretty crappy job. And, or you could send someone to, to pull the weeds, but when you try to use that as an illustration of church planting, that would imply that there's someone on the church staff whose job it is to get rid of the weeds, to get rid of the people who are taking things from the church but not giving anything back. And that just isn't a ministry within the church, just so you know. And if it is a ministry, then it's a ministry that I don't want. And you shouldn't want it either. So when it comes to church planting, the image of a planted field 
has some limitations. But what makes it a good illustration is that, as we've just said, people do the work, but God makes things grow. But Paul has more that he means to teach us about who gets credit for what's accomplished in the church, so it makes sense that he would shift to the building metaphor. Here, it, 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 it makes sense because it, it takes a lot of different people with different skills to build a building. And in church planting, we don't all do the same thing, but we should all be working toward the same goal. So when it came to the church there at Corinth, Paul and Silas had begun the work, and Apollos and Timothy had picked up where Paul and Silas had left off. As evangelists, Apollos, Timothy, Titus had done what Paul told Titus to do. The reason that I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and ordain elders, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if you know anything about the church at Corinth, you know that by the time that Paul and Silas and Apollos and Timothy had finished their work, there were elders and deacons in place at the church at Corinth. But the church at Corinth was, to put it mildly, a hot mess. If you know anything about First and Second Corinthians, you know that they were some of the messiest people in the New Testament. Now, having said that, if you think about building a large building, you know that there are several people who need to be involved at various times in that kind of a project. And the truth of the matter is, the guy who finishes the roof may not be the same guy who laid the foundation, right? And the person who, who built and installed the cabinets might not be the same person who framed the building originally. And of course, we want to hire skilled laborers at each stage of the build. But having said that, I think we'd all agree that it takes more than skill to build a building that will stand the test of time. In fact, when it comes to the test of time, the quality of the materials that we use when we build is actually more important than the skill of the laborers. Don't get me wrong here, both the skill of the laborer and the quality of the materials are important when we set out to build a building that will stand the test of time. I mean, think about it. You, you are building your marriage, and you want your marriage to stand the test of time. You're building your family, and you want your family to stand the test of time. Together, we're building this church, and we want our church to stand the test of time. And I hope you know me well enough to know that I'm not talking about the physical building. When I use the word church, I'm talking about you because you are the church. You've heard me say it often. Don't go to church. Be the church. I've also told you that sometimes when the phone rings on Sunday mornings and, and the, there's a caller that asks the question, what time does the church service start? I'm always tempted to say that the service begins when the church leaves the building. All that to say, when we invest our time in something, we want to have reasonable confidence that that thing will stand the test of time. If I'm going to invest in my family, I want to have some reasonable confidence that my family will stand the test of time. Because here's the deal. I don't want to spend the rest of my life being haphazard. I don't want to move through life with some... With, with a hope-so attitude. I want to move through life with some reasonable confidence that when I'm gone, I will have had some impact. I will have left something behind that will live on long after me. And that applies to my marriage, my family, my ministry here at Potter's House and around the world. In other words, 
I want to have a return on my life, but I know that I can't have a return if I don't make an investment. I can't have a return if I don't make an investment. And as we've been saying, building, building something that lasts requires both true skill and high-quality materials. And listen to me, both those things, both those things, true skill and high-quality materials, both of those things will be expensive. They always are. It's going to cost me something to develop the skills that I need to build my family, for example, and it's going to cost me something to build with the highest quality materials. That's just the way life works. In other words, if you want to build a marriage, a family, or a church that will stand the test of time, you must be willing to pay the price that's required to develop good skills and use the highest quality materials available. And if you don't want to take my word for it, look at what Paul says in verses 10 and 11. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So looking at that verse, while you're looking at that verse, let me ask you this. What would you say if I asked for proof that Paul was a skilled builder? It's not here. It's there. On what? There in that verse, what proves that Paul was a skilled builder? I think it's in that phrase, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Paul knew what he was doing as he built the church, as he laid the foundation for the church there in Corinth. And if I were to ask you if he, if for proof that he used high-quality materials, can you find it there in the verse? Well, Paul says he laid a foundation, and what material did he use as he laid that foundation? According to Paul, the foundation that he laid there in Corinth was Christ Jesus himself. Uh, it doesn't get any more high quality than that. So Paul had laid the foundation. And even though he was a wise builder and used the highest quality materials, he, he still seems to be concerned about something when he thinks about the church there at Corinth and the future of that church, wondering whether the church at Corinth would stand the test of time. What was he concerned about? Well, it's right there in verse 10. I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. Other people had come in behind the Apostle Paul and were building on the foundation that he had laid. It was a high-quality foundation. It was well laid, and it would stand the test of time. We're still using the foundation that Paul used when he built the church there at Corinth. But Paul had made two commitments. He would continue to develop his skill set as a wise builder, and he would continue to use the highest quality materials. But Paul knew that he was not alone in building the church there in Corinth. He knew that other people were building on the foundation that Paul had laid. And Paul wanted to be sure that they would build with care. So that brings us back to the idea that we're building our marriages. We're building our families. We're building our church. And I'm not the first one to observe this, but... There are many couples out there who spend more time preparing to get their driver's license than they, send, than they spend preparing to get their marriage license. There are families out there who spend more time preparing themselves to adopt a pet than they spend preparing themselves to have a child. And there are churches out there who invest more time, money, and effort in the physical building that the church will occupy than they do on the people 
who are the church that will fill that building. And I don't want to step on anyone's toes too hard here, but there are people out there who spend more time and effort building their business than they do on building their marriage, their family, and their church combined. And all across this great country, marriages are going up in smoke. Families are burning down. And churches are dying because we continue to expect a return without making an investment. And I know, I've heard the logic that's implied when someone says, I need to build my business so that I can support my family so that they will want for nothing as they grow up. And I get that, but can I suggest something to you? You can work your tail off your whole life and become a billionaire, and you can give your kids all your money, but your kids will still not be able to buy what they need. They need Jesus, and they need you. And neither of those things are for sale no matter how much money you leave your kids. So if you want to return on your marriage, your family, and your church, you must be willing to invest because, in case I forgot to say it earlier, there is no return without an investment. Hey, if I come to you and I say, in, in 2023, I, I've got this goal that I, I just cooked up last night. I, I thought about it. I, and, and in 2023, I, I want to I get really good at golf. That. Uh, I, I want to get really good at, at golf. But then I add that I've never swung a golf club. And, and I don't, I don't want to practice or buy golf clubs or, or go to a golf course or give any of my time to learning how to play golf. I just want to be good at golf. If I were to do that, how would you advise me? Well, in the spirit of what we're talking about this morning, you might say, yeah, that would be a a really good example of expecting a return without being willing to make an investment. And you'd be right. But that makes me wonder, how is saying I want to be good at golf different from saying I want to be a good dad? I want to be a good grandpa. I want to be a good husband. How is it different from saying I want to be a good follower of Jesus? If I can't expect to be a good golfer without making an investment of my time and effort, can I really expect to be a good dad without making an investment of my time and effort? Can I be a good grandfather or a good husband or a good follower of Jesus without being willing to make an investment in those things? Well, to answer those questions, I think we need some more advice from the Apostle Paul. So I want to look at verses 12 and 13. But before we go there, remember that Paul had laid the foundation for the church there in Corinth, and he was aware that others were building on that foundation. They had followed up on him. And Paul was concerned for the future of the church and for the quality of the church there at Corinth as others built. But Paul was also concerned for the people. And I love this about the Apostle Paul. He's deeply concerned about the church, and there may have been some chuckleheads involved in, in building the church on the foundation that he had laid, but he's concerned about them too. It isn't just the church. He's concerned about the people who were building the church because he wanted them to have a return from all the time that they had invested in the church. So with that in mind, look at verses 12 and 13. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, 
wood, hay, or straw. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Did you notice that Paul is not questioning the skill of the people who are building? But instead, he's questioning the quality of the materials they were using. So in that light, Paul mentions six different building materials, and he divides those building materials into two different classes, two different qualities. He mentions wood, hay, and straw, alongside gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, I know that wood's expensive these days, but which would be more expensive, a 10-foot 2x4 or an ounce of pure gold? Well, given the fact that gold is about $2,000 an ounce right now, I'm just going to say that building with gold, silver, and precious stones will require a significantly heftier investment than building with wood, hay, and straw. But if you were to build one house entirely out of wood, hay, and straw, and then right next to it you built another house entirely out of gold, silver, and precious stones, and then you lit both of them on fire, which of the two houses would last the longest? Good luck, by the way, trying to light the fire the gold, silver, and precious stones on fire. Building with gold, silver, and precious stones requires a greater investment, but what you build will last many lifetimes. Building with wood, hay, and straw will be quite a bit cheaper, but you lose everything when the fire starts. And having said that, I have to say that when I say that you lose everything, that's a bit of a misnomer, and I'll explain that in a moment. But, but Paul is talking about this passage, in this passage about our rewards and our losses at the judgment seat of Christ. Look at what he says in, in verses 14 and 15 when we add those to the ones we've just read. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. I want to be clear here and say that Paul is talking about us losing our reward. He is not talking about us losing our salvation or our place in heaven. That is very clear. But what is he saying? Well, he's, he's talking about what we build for the sake of God's kingdom and what we invest in God's kingdom. And it's important that you understand that your marriage, your family, and your church would all be included in that, as well as ministry that you have within the community or around the world. And this is what we've been talking about this entire time. We've been saying that those of us who are married are building our marriage. Those of us who have families are building our families. Those of us who minister in the church are building the church. Those of us who are ministering in our community or around the world are building in our community and around the world. And all those things that we've done for the kingdom are going to be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ. But I'd like to set you free of a notion that's often taught when the judgment seat of Christ comes up from the pulpit. I've often heard it said that our works are going to appear next to us when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and according to some, they will appear as a, as a huge pile of trash. Wood, hay, and straw with a bit of gold, silver, and precious stones mixed in. And then, according to some, Jesus is going to sort through that nasty pile of trash and pick out one of the nastier pieces. 
He'll grab that piece of rotted wood that represents something that you did way back then, something that you've been ashamed of ever since, and according to some teachers, Jesus will then say, hey, I'd like to hear, and I think we'd all like to hear your explanation for this incredibly nasty piece of wood. In other words, I've heard some teachers say that Jesus is planning to humiliate you in front of everyone. But I want you to remember this morning that he has invested in you. You are his investment. You are his treasure. And that humiliation is not what Paul is describing here. Instead, Paul is acknowledging the fact that you've been building something throughout your life. That's what he's talking about. He knows that you haven't spent your life building a pile of trash. He knows that you've made an investment in in several things. Your life, your marriage, your family, your friends, your church. And that will appear as a structure. The structure, the building that represents your life. And I believe that that moment will bring tears to our eyes as we see how often we chose to build cheaply. How often we chose wood, hay, and stubble when we could have invested more in the moment. In other words, in that moment, our Savior will ask us to give an account, but there is no record in God's Word that He will insist that we explain the wood, the hay, and the straw, the useless and sinful things in our lives. And before you choke on the difference between giving an account, giving an account and making an explanation, let me try to clarify that for you. I work with and for an organization called Global Empowerment, and that means that Global pays my way when I go to Singapore, for example. Now, when I arrive at the airport in Singapore, I'm immediately faced with a decision as to how I'm going to get from the airport to where I'll be staying. It happens every time. If I take the train, just so you know, if I take the train, my trip will cost around three Singapore dollars. If I take a taxi, my trip will cost around 30 Singapore dollars. Now, I prefer to save money when I can, but let's just say for the sake of the argument and the illustration that I decide to take a taxi. So I get in the taxi queue, as they call it there, and I tell the taxi driver the address of the place where I'll be staying, and then he starts off, and then at the end of the ride, I get a receipt for my travels when I get back to the States. I give that receipt along with a whole bunch of other receipts to Margie, the bookkeeper, who keeps the books for Global Empowerment. I give her the receipts because I'm required to account for the money I spent. And Margie is amazing. She goes through all those receipts, including the Forex, the foreign exchange, and and she writes a check at the end of all that. After she justifies everything, she writes a check for all of that to reimburse me for what I spent. And here's the deal. She asks me, she requires that I account for the money I spend on the taxi, but she doesn't ask me to explain why I chose to take the taxi instead of the train. She just doesn't do that. Now, that's not saying that I couldn't explain it. It was a simple matter of my having more luggage than they'll allow on the train. I had two big suitcases. They're not going to let you on the train, along with the fact that it was 12.30 a.m. and the train stops running at midnight. So I would have had to wait six hours if I was going to take the train for the sake of saving the money. Having said that, I can tell you that when we get to heaven, we won't be turning in receipts. Because God keeps very thorough records, very thorough books of every moment. 
When we get to heaven, we will have to give an account, but we won't have to make an explanation. And that accounting will happen the moment our lives appear tangibly next to us so that we can see what we've built and what materials we've used as we've built. And then God is going to light the whole thing on fire. And the only thing that will survive the flames will be the gold, silver, and precious stones that represent those large investments we made in our marriage, our family, and our church. Because those costly moments, those expensive investments, are the ones that will survive the fire. Those costly moments, those expensive investments, are the ones that will gain us our reward in heaven. And how do I know that? Well, Paul tells us that in verses 14 and 15. So let's look at that again. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though, as only, even though only as one escaping the flames. We may, we might lose our rewards, but we will not lose our salvation. That's the investment that he's made in you. You know, when I was growing up, there was a plaque that hung beside the doorway to the kitchen at our home on 10 Bailey Road in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. It hung by the door to the kitchen, and you couldn't get into the house without seeing it. And on that plaque, there was a quote by a missionary named C.T. Studd that said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I, I don't want to live an inexpensive or meaningless life. I want there to be lasting impact from the choices that I made. I don't don't want to arrive in heaven as someone who has managed to accomplish nothing other than escape the flames. I want to hear Jesus say, well done. You've been a good and faithful servant. I want to receive a reward. I want to receive a return on my life's investment. And I expect that you want those same things too. And if you'd like to know something amazing this morning, I can tell you that there's someone else who wants that for you as well. We don't have time to look at all of chapters 3 and 4 in 1 Corinthians, but we can jump to Paul's summary verse on the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And as I read it, I'd like you to check my accuracy. Make sure I get it right, okay? Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive a good talking to from God. No? How about this? At that time, each will receive a rebuke from God. At that time, each will receive a reprimand from God. At that time, each will receive a scolding from God. Or how about a lecture from God? A chastisement from God? At that time, each will receive criticism from God. At that time, each will receive punishment from God for those empty hours. It doesn't say any of those things, does it? Well, what does it say? It says, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. How about some synonyms for that? At that time, each will receive their commendation from God. At that time, each will receive their admiration from God. Each will receive their approval from God. Each will receive their acclaim from God. Each will receive their applause from God. At that time, each will receive the praise that is due them 
from God. Do you know what all that means? It means that God has no intention of humiliating you at the judgment seat of Christ. His goal is to sort through the accounting of your life so that He can wipe away all memory of your failures for all time and reward you for those times when you invested expecting a return. So I've got to ask, since that's God's goal, what does that make you want to do? In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any other foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Will you stand with me? In the presence. Father and our God, we thank you for this first day of the year. Thank you that there's 365, 364 days left after this one. Days when we can invest. Days when we can get involved. Days when we can make sure that our service for you is expensive for us. So that we can anticipate lasting results a return on our investment, a reward as we stand in your presence. And God, we are not claiming that we deserve a reward. We're just acknowledging that rewards, rewards are your idea. Thank you so much that you make things grow, that you give the increase, that you are the one at the end of the day who has accomplished everything. And yet when we stand in your presence, because we have been your co-workers, you will share your joy with us. Thank you that we are your investment. Thank you that you have no intention of humiliating us, God. But God, help us to be motivated to want the reward, to want to hear you say, well done. You have been a good and faithful servant. And God, no matter how long the road is, no matter how bumpy or difficult the trip is, no matter how long it takes, God, we want you to know that our hearts belong to you. If we had a thousand lives, they would all be yours. Use us, we pray, for your glory, for the good of those who have never heard, for the good of those who have heard but never listened, for the good of those, God, who have trusted you and, and now are still sorting out what that means. God, teach us to be effective in the lives of other people. For the sake of your glory, for the sake of their good, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Happy New Year. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, unlike, well, tomorrow will be too, and the day after that. But, but the point is, treat it like the first day of the rest of your life and make sure that you're letting God do in your life what he intends to do, and he's using you in the way that he intends to use you for your glory, for their good out there. All that's left for, for me to say, ready?
nope, sorry. Not on the first day of the year. You are not getting away with that. Ready? Go get him, Potter's house.